Wait a second. This isn't your grandma's cancer show. Not your grandma's cancer show. Welcome to Not Your Grandma's Cancer Show. On today's show, we are getting down and dirty with a menage a trois of anxiety depression, and PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And um, I think I know what you might be thinking. There are more fun versions of menage a trois. Um, but these, this particular one is um, the antithesis of fun. Isn't it enough just to have had cancer without also experiencing the suckiness of insomnia, feelings of irritability, feeling like you're worthless, and really things that just add up to a head fuck? It's not fair, and it sucks. And we here know a little bit about this and also know that hearing other people having gone through this, feeling just as bad, and then finding their way through, sometimes is really good to hear. So we're really delighted to have on the show some fabulous guests. We've got Richard, who accidentally found out that he had feelings that were actually related to his cancer two years afterwards. Um, Greg Trout is going to be reading his blog post about living with PTSD and finding his way through and actually finding out it changed his life. And Natalie Boyle is joining us over Skype. She is in America and she was already in the midst of a medical crisis when she was diagnosed with cancer and knew immediately that she needed help with not only anxiety, depression, but also PTSD. So we're going to hear more about how she dealt with that. But right now, Richard, hello. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. I'm so glad that you're here. So um, tell us a little bit about what you were doing in your life when you were diagnosed. What was I doing? I was pretty busy. Uh, so I was 35. Um, I was working full time, enjoying my job, um, just getting ready to start a family. And um, and yeah, uh, went to the doctors uh, for a kind of uh, a bit of a checkup. I'd been losing weight, wasn't quite sure why I'd been losing weight because I'd stopped going to the gym and, and all that kind of stuff. And uh, Yep, being in my mid-30s, I didn't think I'd be lucky enough just to be naturally uh, losing weight. So I went and had a checkup, um, and initially they said, oh, it's probably just um, something we can treat quite easily. Um, but very quickly got a phone call from the doctors to say, um, well, we've had a look at your bloods, and the cells are doing this, and there's this. And there was a very, very long conversation, um, of which I understood very little. Uh, and eventually I had to say, look, what is it we're calling this? <laughs> because surely this thing has a name. And, uh, and my doctor said, well, okay, well, you've got, it's uh, it's leukemia. Um, and I was at work. I was sitting in a meeting room um, having this conversation. And yeah, that was a bit of a shock. Um, so I then had to, uh, had to go and speak to my boss and say, look, I've just had a bit of bad news. I think I might have to go home. Uh, <laughs> and how and... did you feel in that moment? I mean, it was utter shock. Really, I think I, I guess most of the people listening to the podcast will can kind of empathise with that. It was just an absolute shock, completely unexpected, uh, utterly unexpected. 
Um, and we were, you know, my wife and I were expecting um, a child. Uh, in fact, I got told um, a day before um, our 20-week scan. Um, so, yeah, it was all in the midst of a lot of other positive stuff that was going on in my life. And so, yeah, it was a, a real curveball. And what was the next step for you in terms of after? So you're at work. You've just asked to leave. Yeah. Uh, How did you process that that night? And um, it was it was difficult. Um, so I'd been given this diagnosis over the phone uh, and my doctor had booked me in with an appointment with a haematologist um, for, I think it was two days afterwards. And so when I got home and I had to call my wife and she was at work and say, look, I think you need to come home. I've just had this news. Um, and that was a really difficult thing to try and deliver over the phone as well. And we um, kind of decided, well, we'll wait until I've had the full appointment um, we've got a bit more information before we share this with family and friends and whatever, but it became very clear very quickly, you know, within hours, that clearly we weren't going to keep it together ourselves and we needed the support of friends and family uh, to try and get through this. So we, um, you know, we told her parents, we told my parents, and uh, they were then all around that evening and there was lots of um, talking and questions and crying and just trying to uh. sort it out in all of our minds. But getting that that support in early was was important yeah I don't think we would have held it together uh on our own for two days well that's the thing is it just it's it's too big sometimes yeah, absolutely and it's recognizing that it's it's so big yeah and so what was your treatment um so the type of leukemia I had was it's a very slow progressing one and um there's no need to treat it instantly there's it an instant treatment doesn't have any um, effect on how successful that treatment might be. Um, at the time, this was 2009, so there was a, a big um, potential flu pandemic that was going to sweep the globe. And my doctors took the decision not to treat me because um, even though I had a sort of weakened immune system, um, I would still have a, as good a chance as, any, of, as anyone of kind of getting through this flu pandemic were it to hit. Uh, but if they treated me, then I'd have no immune system. Um, and the last place I would want to be then is in a hospital full of people with the flu. So we delayed treatment for about three months. So I was diagnosed in October 2009, but wasn't treated until January 2010. And how were you feeling during that time of nothing really happening, but you know that you're living with this? Um, it was, yeah, it just felt like everything was on pause, really. Um, the only th thing that was kind of moving and progressing, um, was, um, my wife getting more and more pregnant <laughs> or bigger and having to go for sort of like the checkups and stuff. So we had that to kind of keep us moving through, but I couldn't, um, go do my nine normal work. Um, I had to work from home. Um, I was advised by doctors to avoid public places, so pubs and shopping centres and cinemas and all that kind of thing were off limits. Um, so I was just kind of on hold, really, waiting at, at home for this treatment to start. And it sounds, that sounds really isolating because those, are, of course, are the places you go in your regular life and you meet other people and and chat. So Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for, from a working perspective, there's, you know, conference calls are okay and Skype serves a, you know, a purpose, but it's not quite the same as being in the office and, and being in that environment where you're collaborating with people. 
and likewise going out, you know, not being able to go out and have a drink or go and see some music or go and see a film. Um, even though I didn't do that much anyway, then being told that you're not allowed to do it yeah. <laughs> then makes it that much more tantalising and that you wish that you could. Um, so, yeah, it was it was quite limiting. And and then when you did get your treatment, um, where was that? Um, so I was treated at the local hospital in Kingston. Um, and my treatment was... Um, was pretty short actually um they've really although it's a, a rare leukemia they've really refined how it can be treated so my treatment of chemotherapy was simply over the course of a week it was five days um chemotherapy is delivered via a, a what they call a subcutaneous injection so it's a bit like getting a flu shot um sort of two fl- sh- flu shots um every morning um for five days and that's it and the injection relies on the body to slowly release the chemotherapy um, into the bloodstream rather than sitting on a drip for 12 hours or 24 hours, which is how the treatment used to be. And um, it's a very effective chemotherapy in that it very, very quickly kills off all of your immune system. So all the white blood cells start dipping off. And by the end of that week, I think it was, yeah, by the Friday, I was pretty much neutropenic. Um, And they gave me the option of saying, well... You can either go home and if you get fevers or anything at the weekend, then come into A&E and they'll stick you somewhere in the hospital or there's a room available. We'll check you in now if you want. And so um, so I took the option of just being checked in and looked after from that point on. And how long were you in hospital for? <laughs> Quite a while, actually. Um, I think the first I was in and out a, a bit, um, but for the first period I was in for I think it was about one and a half two weeks uh, in an isolation room in hospital um, and yeah we talked about um, it being slightly isolating having to work from home being in the same room for two weeks um, that's really really isolating um, and that yeah you, you go through some some very odd sort of mental phases of of just wanting to do stuff and wanting to get out and you're kind of lost in your own thought it's a it, I mean it's a good time to read I caught up on a lot of reading I caught up on a lot of sleep but yes, that was a that was an interesting experience. I I wouldn't want to go through again. And I imagine your wife was getting even more pregnant at that point. It, yeah. Know? So um, rather than uh, sitting at home with her feet up, with me looking after her, she was then walking to the hospital every day. Um, you know, by this time she's eight, eight and a half months pregnant. Um, it was snowing, so there was lots of heavy snow outside that she was having to walk walk through to get to the hospital. So yeah, she wasn't having the um, the relaxing pregnancy that she probably should have done. And in terms of depression, did you feel at that time that you were depressed or was there almost, even in that isolation, no space for it because it was a matter of powering through? Um, I, I don't think that I felt, um, I don't know, more depressed than I would have expected. I mean, clearly I was anxious, I was fearful, I was sad about what was happening to me. I was sad that I couldn't be, you know, supporting my wife the way that I'd hoped that, you know, this wasn't the pregnancy that we'd (laughs) we'd hoped for. Um, But I think being in hospital and being surrounded by doctors and nurses and being poked and prodded and having stuff checked every hour of every day, you kind of just allow yourself to be carried by that process and don't really... um, internalize it or you don't feel that you're responsible for any of it so you kind of hand over your life and and everything that's going on to other people who seem to know what they're doing and kind of um 
almost detach yourself from it. Um, I mean, I did. I wrote a blog um, throughout my treatment, and also made a video blog um, to try and allow myself to try and frame what was going on uh, on any given day. Um, but I don't think that I felt particularly. Um, I don't know, sad or depressed at that stage. The the prognosis was relatively good. I knew that the treatment ultimately would work. I just had to get through this phase of fevers and, and kind of the fallout of having no immune system for a while. And when did you get out of hospital? I, I, I got out of hospital a couple of times and then very quickly went back in again oh, with no. mystery fevers. But I finally got out of hospital for the last time three days before my daughter was born. Wow. Yeah, I did have a fear at one stage that all three of us would be there in hospital gowns for that kind of first photo. <laughs> but thankfully, I got out um, just in time. And uh, yeah, then it was time for someone else to be treated. And in the centre of attention. And yes. Yeah. Yeah. Thrown into life as a, as a first time dad. And yes. All that that entails. So where do you think your your feelings went during that time? What do you feel like they were just sort of put on hold percolating in the background um i think not entirely i I mean i I say that through the kind of treatment process in hospital you kind of detach and it's quite nice to hand yourself to other people that know what they're doing to get you through that stage but clearly once you get out of hospital you then kind of leave that support network and it's a bit you then think you know i'm adrift um there's no one here looking after me and um, you kind of start to have to become more self-reliant. But I think that um, from a feelings standpoint, because I got out of, you know, no sooner had I got out of hospital than I became a, a new father, it was really difficult to figure out whether any of the tiredness or fatigue or anxiety or anything that I was feeling was down to because I've just been through cancer treatment or whether it was because I was a new father. And I think a lot of it was just a mix of both. I mean, that's the thing is these things never happen in yes. a vacuum. Yeah. You know, it would be one thing if cancer was the only thing that you were dealing with in yeah. your life. But it's... And I think actually, um, you know, my daughter being born was actually a really positive thing and a, and a, a really good distraction from, you know, I couldn't sit and wallow in what I'd just been through or, or think about myself. It was all about her and, you know, the sleepless nights when she kept us awake at night but then also the little kind of you know little funny things that they do kids are a a joy and that's a real kind of positive aspect that that kind of carried me through when you realized that two years later you were still having some feelings that you weren't sure what to put down to what was it that that made you analyze that or have a look at it um well you know immediately after getting out of hospital there was still whilst i wasn't in the daily or hourly care of a set of nurses and doctors there was still a lot of medication to take and then there was still a lot of fatigue that I was suffering pretty much for a year after treatment and it was clear to me in my mind that that was all because of the cancer and that this will and the treatment and eventually this will fade out and go um also at that time I started looking around as I was feeling better how can I help other people I started reading a lot of what Macmillan were doing um and they have a, uh, a kind of some, a support network called Cancer Voices where you can volunteer to do stuff, whether it's um, collect money, whether it's to read literature, whether it's to help write their leaflets that they, um, they publish. And so I had um, agreed to review books um, and uh, had been sent a few and some of them were quite good and some of them were quite 
bad and kind of just generally gave my feedback uh, on what I thought of them. And once I got through that first year, I was then back into just, you know, working normally, being a dad, just getting back into normal stuff. It's, you know, the the thoughts about cancer and treatment and what that means never truly go away. But I was much more into living a, in quotes, normal life. But I was sent um, a book by Macmillan as part of this Cancer Voices thing that was called uh, The Cancer Survivor's Companion. And it is the best post-cancer book you could ever read Um, it's very simply written Um, it covers a variety of topics Um, you know how to deal with being worried um, relationships and sex last week's podcast (laughs) Um, uh, and one of the chapters in it is on depression now I I was reading this because I was reading it I felt for the benefit of cancer sufferers who would come after me and therefore I owed it to them to read this thing from from cover to cover and not just dip into the chapters that I thought was relevant. So I started reading the the depression chapter and it it kind of lists the here are the symptoms of someone that's depressed. I was like, oh okay, so I started reading this and it starts listing sadness and negative thoughts about yourself and losing energy. And as I read this I was like hold on, that's this is me. And I started thinking, well you know, I was still doing the job that I had been doing but for quite a while I hadn't been enjoying it and I didn't feel I was doing particularly well in my career and that I was being overlooked for stuff and the quality of my work was bad and no one really liked me and all this kind of stuff but you just get through day to day and it was just reading this list um, you know feeling irritable feeling guilty about just anything um, uh, withdrawing from people and withdrawing from interaction from people and I just read this and I was and you know at the bottom it says you know everyone has some of these feelings at some point in their life but if most of this list is describing you then this is a form of depression or anxiety and I was like god that's you know that's me and how did that feel for that to be you had you ever had depression at any other time in your life was no, this something you know, I'm a you? relatively positive person it's not I would never have considered myself to be depressed and I, and I think clearly um, there are varying levels of depression um, and I you know I wasn't at the the bottom of a pit of despair or anything but clearly I wasn't in a very positive place and initially it was a bit of a oh this is this is talking about me this isn't talking about anyone else that's going to come after me um, so there was a little bit of a shock there, but then because it's a very easy to read book and it, you know, the chapter very quickly gets into, um, once you've identified it, here's how you get out of where you are. Um, I quite quickly felt quite empowered to to get myself out of that and to start thinking more positively and get myself back on a, a more sensible track, really. So what was something that really helped for you? Um, there was... Simple stuff like um, making sure you're getting exercise uh, and eating well and that kind of thing. You've got to do that, and that won't give you an instant hit of success, but it's you need to do that. Without doing that, without eating well, getting some exercise and sleeping well, you're not. there's no point in doing anything else to try and improve yourself. So I started making sure that I was doing that and not skipping meals and not eating terrible food and not staying up too late uh, watching television, getting some sleep. Um, but there's... The stuff 
in the chapter um, that really kind of um, helped me was one thinking about it describes a circle uh, of depression. One is kind of, you know, you've got no confidence, so you kind of get low mood and you're a bit unhappy. And then because of that, you then lose any motivation for doing anything. And because you've lost motivation for doing anything, you don't try and do anything. So there's then nothing that you succeed at. And then because you're not succeeding anything at anything, you then lose your confidence and you just keep going round and round in that circle. And really it was trying to find ways, and it describes a number of ways of kind of breaking that circle. And for me, it was this, you have to consciously listen to what you're thinking about yourself. Uh, and almost at the end of the day, go through the day and think about what are the periods of that day where I felt really, really low or really, really negative and think about or even write down what were the words I was thinking of what was it that got me into that position and by writing it down you become more aware of of those words or those those thoughts that got you there and once you're aware of them one having written down you then become a little bit more detached from them you're then viewing it as a, a, a as an observer but also it means that you can catch yourself when that starts to happen so in the day when you start thinking you know oh god I'm you know I'm shit at this I'll never do this very well rather than allowing yourself to get into that spiral or that circle of depression you can kind of catch yourself and say no hold on think about this objectively and pull yourself out of it and it's getting into that practice and that exercise that really kind of helped me quite quickly get out of that stupor that I was in I think that's brilliant it's I mean I, I think that's the trick of to listening to it because you know the very nature of it is that it sounds real Yes. It sounds very authoritative. It sounds like it, you know, it knows what it's talking about. Yeah. And, you know, to actually be able to, you know, disengage to the point that you can look at it objectively is is a really, really good skill to have. I sometimes use the trick of imagining that if that voice was talking to my friend, yeah. yeah. how would I react to it? I'd I be mean, like, that's ridiculous, you know, but when it's talking to me, I'm like, oh, it's so true. Yeah, you, know, you have to think, you know, the, the things you say to yourself, would you ever say that to someone else that was in the same position? And you have to think about, um, make you have to make sure that when, if bad things happen in the day and you blame yourself, that you don't, that you know, that you, if you have to check that it really was your fault that that bad thing happened. And if success happens, don't say, oh, well, that was just luck or that, no, that was because you worked hard. That's because you did something good and, and you have to see stuff that goes wrong and stuff that goes right on the same in the same view you can't you know just see success as being luck right. but badness being all your fault <laughs> um and the other thing was you know really what you were saying is reminding yourself that your thoughts are just your perception and your view on the world they're not fact and so when you think you know i'm terrible at this you have to remind yourself that well actually what you mean is you think you're terrible at this and then you have to give yourself reasons why, but don't take that as absolute fact just because it's your mind saying it. Yeah, I think that that's really profound and that really is so useful. And it's a muscle to be able to do that, to be able to catch that. And it is something that, like you said, you you start with the basics and then you work up to the ways that work for you in order to be able to catch that and and find your way through. And sometimes finding your way through is is knowing that other people also have to work 
with that as well. Thank you so much for for sharing that with us, and I'm I'm actually going to try and do that. Um, we also have Greg Trout. He is he's had cancer twice, and he suffered with PTSD, and. So he actually came up with a list, 101 things to do when you survive, and in which he's traveling all around the world, charting his 101 things. And this is his blog post that he is reading for us today. Hello, everyone at Shine Cancer Support. I hope this finds you all very well. Uh, My name is Greg Trout, and I'm a 35-year-old double cancer survivor. I'm in remission for bowel cancer at the moment, uh, but that's not been... Uh, my main battle recently, I've uh, suffered with something called post-traumatic stress disorder, which I'm sure many of you have heard of. Uh, I didn't really know anything about it as, a, as an adult, so uh, it's, uh, it was all new to me, and I decided to share my story on my website, 101 Things to Do When You Survive, uh, just to raise a little awareness about the mental health issues that can come with illness. So this is, uh, this is my experience with post-traumatic stress disorder, and I hope you find this useful and if you identify with this, then please know that you are not alone. Okay. Anyone who survived cancer will tell you that there is never a moment where the doctor turns to you and declares, you are cured. To my knowledge, that never happened when I survived cancer as a child, and it certainly didn't happen this time around as an adult. Every six months, you're simply told, all is looking good, I'll see you in another six months. And that's it. I was first diagnosed with cancer as a seven-year-old. I had stage four Wilms tumor, It was pretty far gone and I had tumours in my lungs, my arteries and my kidney. As well as having my kidney removed, I had extensive chemo and radiotherapy. I was very lucky to survive when many others on my ward didn't. My worst fear came true again at the age of 30 when I was diagnosed with bowel cancer. I couldn't believe it. My mum had always told me that I'd had my tough time in life and that it would never come back. Perhaps rather naively, I believed her. Getting cancer again as an adult was a completely different experience to that as a child. The only things I remember about being ill as a child are being sick all the time, losing my hair, and the smell of chemotherapy. I don't even remember ever worrying immediately afterwards whether it would come back or not. People would say how brave I was, but in truth, I just had no idea what was going on. As an adult, I had a completely different experience, and I crumbled both before and especially afterwards. When I was ill, I I always believed that I would get better. But when I was better, I didn't believe I was. I liken it to climbing Everest, only to get to the top, and then suddenly having all your ropes and safety equipment taken away. I was just gripped by fear. The fear of cancer coming back, fear it hadn't actually gone, and the fear that I was on very limited time. This fear led to a whole assortment of issues. I suffered from insomnia, spending most of my nights staring at the ceiling, First just worrying about cancer, but then pretty worrying pretty much about everything. I then developed severe eczema on my face and body. And when I did sleep, I suffered from night sweats. I was highly emotional. I lost all my confidence. I felt like a glass that was filled to the top and just one drop would send me over the edge. The worst thing about all this was that I just hated myself for feeling this way. I mean, wasn't I meant to be filled with pure relation and a new love of life like all cancer survivors I'd read about? I was certainly grateful, but happiness seemed to elude me. I'd gone from someone who was confident and enthusiastic about life to someone who didn't even want to leave the house. When I saw my friends, they would often comment on my skin or how tired I look. 
it was tiredness that led me to find out that I had cancer in the first place. So each time they said this, all I heard was, Greg, you still have cancer. I honestly thought I was losing my mind. Cancer was all I thought about. I tried different forms of therapy and eventually resorted to antidepressants. My relationship then came to an end, which looking back, perhaps I shouldn't, shouldn't have come as a surprise. I wasn't the man she fell in love with anymore. It wasn't until a chance encounter with an article I'd read about in a woman's magazine that, that, that made me believe that maybe everything I was feeling was actually normal. This article was written by the singer Kylie Minogue. Kylie had survived breast cancer a number of years ago, and in the article she said that there wasn't a day that went by where she didn't think about having cancer. Perhaps selfishly this made me feel better. It seems I wasn't alone in thinking this way. All the books I'd read up until now were people proudly claiming that cancer was the best thing ever to happen to them. But this was the first thing I'd read I actually related to. It took doctors a long time to use the term post-traumatic stress disorder to give a name to my, my current physical and mental condition. I'd always associated PTSD with the military or war, so never associated it with cancer illness, which seems ridiculous now considering that it's all in the title. Post-trauma. It doesn't matter what kind of trauma it is, if it's affected you physically or mentally in a negative way, then of course it could be classed as a traumatic experience. My issues with PTSD have been worse than both my cancers put together. When I was ill, I always had hope that I would be okay. Hope that, that hope quickly vanished when I was better, and it was the worst feeling in the world. Without hope, I was lost. My ongoing experience with anxiety and PTSD is what prompted me not only to go on this trip, but to also share my story. I wondered how many people out there hadn't read the article about Kylie, and I wondered how many people felt like I did. The good news is that this feeling of fear and anger after cancer is completely normal. I've received hundreds of emails from people around the world who have gone through the same thing. The good news is, is that anxiety can be controlled. And I found that simply by writing a list of things to look forward to, uh, to doing in the future, helped me overcome this fear of the future that I once held. Within a couple of months of writing this list, I started to sleep again, my skin cleared up, I started to feel excited about the future instead of fearing it. Cancer is unfortunately still my first thought of the day, but I can now turn my thoughts around to much happier and optimistic ones. I have found that doing things I enjoy is the best medicine of all. You don't have to travel the world, but simply do something that makes you happy. Watching the sun go down or having a cup of coffee whilst watching the world go by are still my most favorite things in the world. I just try to do them more often now. The main thing people should know uh, who are also going through this is that you're not alone and that there is hope. Thank you so much, Greg, for sending that to us. Um, the last I saw you were in Singapore, but you could be anywhere in the world right now. <laughs> but we really appreciate that and uh, look forward to seeing you when you're back in the UK. And um, if you want to chart um, Greg's travels, um, you can go to www.whenyousurvive.com. Um, and now... We have Natalie joining us to chat more about this. And Natalie is in Texas. And I met Natalie when she was in Los Angeles. And uh, Natalie, are you there? Yes, I am. Hi. Hi. Um, so tell us what was going on in your life um, the moment that you found out that you had cancer. 
Yes. Um, so I was actually in the middle of several major medical crises that had nothing to do with cancer when I got the cancer diagnosis. Um, I have twin girls, and uh, I've been di- I had been diagnosed with uh, severe ulcerative colitis before I had my twins. And then I had my twin girls, and about six weeks later, I wound up having to have an emergency hysterectomy, um, which was an incredibly traumatic uh, experience. I can talk a little bit about that later. Um, But I had six-week-old twins, and I kind of just had to put my head down and get through it. And... um, And then I continued getting worse and worse and worse with my ulcerative colitis to the point where after many, many treatments that just didn't work, it became really debilitating. And so with my doctors, we made the decision to have my entire colon removed. Um, So I had that surgery scheduled, set up, ready to go, and was kind of mentally prepared for that. And um, as part of all of my treatments... I had actually gotten osteoporosis, and so I was going to see an endocrinologist. This was the Friday before my colon removal surgery was supposed to be on a Monday. And that Friday, I went into the endocrinologist, and they had done some body scans and prep for my colon removal. And she said, hey, has anybody talked to you about this nodule thyroid? And I said, no, I thought I was here for osteoporosis. And she said, well, this is just a little concerning. Let's do an ultrasound and just kind of see what we're looking at. Um And I left that appointment with her saying she thought it was very suspicious and we needed to get a biopsy of it. So I got my biopsy results um, in between my two colon surgeries um, and the results were inconclusive. So what they basically told me was there was a 50-50 chance that I had cancer and there were no further tests that they could do. So they were going to just have me make a decision about whether to have my whole thyroid out or not um, based on not having full information. And that was so unbelievably overwhelming to me that I really just kind of spun into a very, very dark place. Um, And that's the point at which I I gave it up and I went to go seek help. Um, And so I started seeing a therapist at that point because I I just, I couldn't cope with one more thing. It was just not possible for me. What did that look like to you? Can you tell us about a really low moment? Yes. um, So I, you know, I was in recovery for this major surgery anyway. So I was spending a lot of time by myself alone in a darkened room and uh, so it's it's hard to tell what is just normal recovery and what is really the depression part of it. Um, but where I think that that I started to really notice, even more so than the depression, was just this overwhelming level of anxiety. And um, and I actually had my first ever panic attack, um, which if if anyone out there has had it is is probably the worst thing of everything I've experienced. It's probably the worst uh, because you just, you feel like you're going absolutely crazy because you know there's not something that's about to kill you. And yet your whole body is screaming at you that at any moment you're going to die. And there's, there's kind of no explanation for it. Um, and so luckily I had already started seeing a therapist when my first panic attack hit. So I, I could get a call into somebody and be like, help, 
something is happening. Otherwise, I probably would have wound up in an ER because I thought I was having a stroke. I thought I was having a heart attack. I thought, I, I don't know what I thought. It was just every cell of my body was telling me that something was wrong. And Natalie, how were you feeling when those biopsy results came through? Um, so when I finally did get the diagnosis that it was cancer, I just couldn't believe that one more thing could possibly be added to my life at that point. And um, I was in shock and I was also really, really angry. Um, And I was just, I was overwhelmed. And so I had been very good at through all of my health stuff, just kind of putting things away. I describe it as, as putting it on a shelf, being like, I'll deal with that later. I'll deal with that later. I don't have time for that right now. And and so a lot of the emotional things um, I had just kind of put away. I I'd stuck them on a shelf and said, I can deal with that later. I've got to get through the physical part of it. And then I got this cancer diagnosis and all of a sudden, like that whole shelf came tumbling down because it was that it was like that one extra box that you're trying to slam into a tiny corner yeah. and everything just topples over. And so I think that's where um, where I realized uh, through therapy that that what I was dealing with was actually a PTSD, um, because it's it's interesting um, when my hysterectomy happened, I didn't. Uh, I didn't have any kind of PTSD symptoms. Um, I, I just put it away. I had six week old twins, but then, um, once I got the, the cancer diagnosis, I started having horrible insomnia. I started having nightmares about, um, about waking up after my hysterectomy. Um, I started having more panic attacks, um, and, and those things all kind of came after, after the cancer diagnosis. And so I think it was just that, that one more thing that was just, just too much and kind of all my feelings that I'd been suppressing for a long time just kind of came crashing down on me. Me and Natalie have um, have <laughs> known each other for quite a long time, and one of the ways I would describe Natalie is uh, an effervescent optimist. <laughs> and so I, how, how was it for you to experience not feeling the way you used to about life? So basically your, your theories of how you move through the world, um, really changing radically very quickly. How was that for you? Did you feel like you were losing a part of yourself? Yes. Oh, for a long time, I felt like I just wasn't I wasn't me anymore. I was like a shell of myself. And, um, and really what, what I would say is, is a big thing is I, there was a long period of time where I just lost all hope, where I just felt like everything, every appointment I went to, they'd probably find another cancer. And every, um, every time I went into the doctor, oh, this blood draw is probably going to cause a vein to pop. I mean, I, I was really at a place where I, couldn't believe I, I just believed that everything that could possibly go wrong with my body would um, because so much had gone wrong and I had you know I had three major major medical issues that had nothing to do with each other and so to me I just lost all ability to, to have any faith or trust in my body and I had previously been such a positive person that there was this 
crushing change in my worldview. And it was really hard for me to get around the idea that I was depressed. Like I'm depressed? No, no. I've always been I've always been the positive person. How could I be depressed? Like that's not possible. Um, and so I fought with my therapist for a long time about refusing to go on antidepressants. I just couldn't believe that I had depression. That didn't that didn't seem right. It didn't sit well with me. I, I'm 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 always the one who's like, yeah, let's be positive and everything's great. And no, and I and I was in a really dark place. And I actually fought with my therapist for a long time um, because I said I wasn't depressed and I didn't need antidepressants and she should stop talking about it. I actually got really angry at her uh, because I said, there's no way I've seen depressed people. I am not depressed. That's not me. And and then there just came a day where I realized that I wasn't myself anymore. I was kind of this empty shell of myself and I was getting angry at people that I loved very quickly. And I was, I just wasn't me. I had lost something that was inherently me. Um, and that's the point when I realized that maybe I did need something. Um, and so finally I allowed her to give me an anti-anxiety, antidepressant. And it took a while. Um, you know, we had to change dosages and things. But at one point, a few months later, I started to see a glimpse of like, oh, there I am. Oh, I'm still in there. And um, and that was a great feeling is to be like, I'm not gone completely. Because when when I was in that dark place, I felt like the true, my true self was gone. Like I just couldn't find me, if that makes any sense. It makes total sense. And in, and that 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 is the, the thing about it is because it, it sucks that hope away and yes. it doesn't make you can't imagine ever being out of it um that makes it so particularly hard was there um and actually opening this up to to both of you um is there anything that from having undergone this experience you think that has made you grow in terms of understanding yourself or having a, a renewed look at the world I think that uh, 100% yes. I have, um, I really actually found, you know, so much, so much joy and recovery in it. And I actually um, started a nonprofit here in the States that's helping um, moms that have young children um, who are going through cancer treatment to get childcare um, because that was one of my big, big struggles. And um, in doing that, it is, it's become this huge source of therapy for me um, because I still get, I still get down and I get anxious and I get upset at everything that happened to me. Um, and for me, I've found, uh, and, and someone I recently spoke to had this great phrase, which called it mitzvah therapy. So um, doing something for somebody else, you can't be thinking about yourself at that moment. And so when I put my time into that, I've been able to um, to kind of move through and feel good about myself again, rather than just feel all of this guilt and um, those self-critical voices and things like that. There's no room for it when I'm when I'm working on that project. So that's been a huge source of growth for me. That sounds really great. And Richard, I know that um, because I was at the Shine Escape this year, that uh-huh. you've um, done some work as a your role was a peer support yeah I, th- for the I think um, you know similar to what Natalie was saying then in, in that uh, you kind of 
um, find that one way to help yourself is is to help others, um, and it's part of you know that exercise of finding the things that make you feel good and repeatedly doing them to try and get away from those those low points and those feelings of depression or anxiety. And the more you do them, the more almost the more natural they become and the more you enjoy them. So you find this enjoyment and do things uh, maybe that you would never have done before. You do things that you would have done a little of before that made you happy. You now do a lot. And yeah, so one of the things that I uh, certainly enjoy doing is working as a, a peer supporter for, for Shine, um, mainly on the, the the annual retreats, really, and helping people that are uh, at a, you know, a, a different point in their their. their, their Oh, I hate this word, but I'm going to say the word journey. journey. And we nearly got through <laughs> the podcast without saying that. But yeah, but helping people through. And, you know, that support goes both ways. You, you help people and through that peer support, it's, it is peer support. You get support back and you get help back. And, and I think one of the, the other things is that, uh, and, and thinking about what Natalie was saying about, you know, having lost herself, realising that she'd completely become a shell. And I think when you've been through that, that gives you a much better sense of of who you are, and then when you refind that person, when you find who you are again, you're I guess you're more aware of who you are, more aware of what makes you happy, and more keen and enthusiastic to to hold on to that person and make sure that that bit of you doesn't go away again. So I think yes, there are positive aspects to come out of this. Yeah, I was um, reading about um, there's something called post-traumatic growth, which is what all three of you have really described, um, Greg and, and and both of you, in terms of like you get to that point where it just it seems completely hopeless you know the light has gone out and somehow from there instead of trying to go back to the life that you had before new pathways you know new resolve new ways of thinking um come about that that do lead you to uh, you know a really fulfilling a really fulfilling place and you know i should share actually that the idea for this show came from that same place um and that was my momentum from moving forward. I was really, really lucky to have been diagnosed in a, a major city. I was living in Los Angeles, and then I moved to London again. I, I was so lucky to be around, um, you know, cancer support centres that helped with um, younger women. And hearing that I wasn't alone with what I was feeling was transformative. And... And also, you know, is that acknowledgement of how terribly awful it is also allowed more space for for laughter. Um, it was like I could share it with people, and then once it was shared, it was it was lighter to carry. And I thought, well, what would have happened if I had lived somewhere more remote, somewhere that didn't have something? And and I realized that I needed to do this show. And it, you know, it came from feeling very, very, very broken um, and putting the pieces back together. So thank you to both of you and to Greg um, for being on the show today and for sharing your experiences. Um, And for all of you out there listening to the shows, we'd love to hear from you. So you can find us on Twitter. not your grandma's cancer show was too long for Twitter. Um, so it's NYGCS. Um, and, you know, let us know your thoughts, things that helped you. Um, if you're still in that place, you know, you can tell us 
that you're still there, you're still working through it. Um, if you have a blog post that you would like to read and share on the show, also drop us a line, let us know. You can also find us on the Shine Cancer Support page. Um, you can send us an info, uh, email at info at Shine Cancer Support. So we look forward to hearing from you and tune into the next show, which is going to be about traveling. Because of course, after cancer, there's a few new things to consider before you head out overseas. So join us next time. Until then, see you later.